You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 7, and we will read together verses 10 through verse 19. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Let's pray together. Lord, great God, we come before you in the name and in the power to assemble in the name of the great triune God. We thank you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for revealing your truth to us in your word. It is our desire that we may obey the Father to the glory of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to know your word in order to do that. And so we ask that you would grant to us the grace of understanding and illumination and send your spirit to teach us this morning. Keep us faithful to your word and attentive to your word. And above all, O God, may we respond with obedience that you might be pleased, that you might be glorified, and that you might instruct us more in your truth. Sanctify us and conform us to the image of your Son through your word today. In the power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that has plagued the church ever since the beginning is the pervasiveness and the presence of false teachers and false teaching. It has always been the case that as long as there is truth, there is also error that looks a lot like the truth. And one of Satan's tasks, and something he does very well, is to make error look like truth, sound like truth, and even feel like truth so as to deceive people away from the truth and into his error. He has a way of making poison poison appealing. That's what he does. That's how he deceives people. He doesn't come with a pitchfork and a forked tail and a forked tongue and red horns and a red suit with fire belching in the background and say to you, come follow me. He, he will usually use error that is disguised as the truth so that people who are supposed to love the truth and follow the truth will be led astray into error. That's what Satan does. And it has been the case, it was the case in the Old Testament, it's the case in times of Jesus and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were false prophets among the people, false teachers among the people who taught false doctrine and led the people of God astray. And the Old Testament gives instruction on what to do with those false teachers and how to handle them. They were to be stoned and removed from the midst of the people so that they would not lead the people's hearts away after other gods. In the time of Jesus, Jesus condemned false teachers and warned about false teachers and false teaching. He said in Matthew 7, Beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing. They come looking like sheep, sounding like sheep, smelling like sheep, acting like sheep, 
feeling like sheep, but they are really ravenous wolves. In Matthew 23, is there is one long chapter which is nothing but a denunciation of the false religion of the Pharisees in all of their works righteousness. They had taken the pure religion of Judaism and they had corrupted it into an opportunity to glorify the flesh and to, uh, to satisfy the desires of the flesh and their own desire to be righteous in front of other people. Then in the days of the apostles, the apostles fought against and warned against false teaching. Some of the books of your New Testament, like Galatians and Second Peter and Jude, are written for the specific purpose of, of describing these false teachers so that you might know what they look like. And for 2,000 years, it has been the same. Things have not improved, and there is nothing new under the sun. Just as there were false teachers in the days of the apostles, there are false teachers today. They are in print. They are on television. They are on radio. And if you are familiar with the books of Second Peter and Jude, then you will recognize them instantly because they're not hard to spot if you know what to look for. One of the things that Jesus was accused of being, as much as it assaults our sensibilities, was a false teacher. In John chapter 7, some in the crowd in Jerusalem said he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he leads the people astray. And by that, they meant that their assessment of Jesus was that he was leading people away from the one true God and away from the truth after himself. And that accusation against Jesus, that assessment of Jesus, was shared by the religious leaders in the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. And that becomes the foundation or the basis of the charge that they brought against Jesus in verse 15 that we looked at last week, where they said to him, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And the charge there was, Jesus does not come from one of our accredited institutions of higher learning. And so since that is the case, he can't possibly be educated enough to be teaching in the temple. And the implication to the people was, you shouldn't be listening to him. He doesn't derive his teaching from other men, and so you ought not to give him any credence at all. And Jesus answers in verse 16 and 18 by really addressing two things that are at the foundation or the root of their charge. Their charge was that he was a false teacher, and that what he was giving was false teaching. Now that impugns both the substance of his teaching and the motive of his teaching. And Jesus addresses both their charge against the substance of his teaching in verses 16 and 17, and he addresses the motive of his teaching in verse 18. And it's that passage that we're going to start looking at today. In verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That is, the substance or the source of his teaching. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is God's will, he will know of the teaching whether it is from God or from myself. Now that addresses the the core or the substance of his teaching. Then in verse 18, Jesus addresses the motive behind his teaching. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Why was it that Jesus taught what he taught? What did Jesus teach and why did he teach it? Those are the two issues. Interestingly enough, you can, I can give you two marks of a false teacher. There are two marks of a false teacher, and this is true of every false teacher. A false teacher will always speak from his own authority, that's number one, and he will always seek his own glory, that's number two. He will speak from his own authority, and he will seek his own glory. Those are the two marks of a false teacher. First, he will speak from his own authority, and here's how that looks in practice. The Lord told me, or the Lord revealed to me, that I'm supposed to tell you this. Or I had a dream, or I had a vision, and so the Lord has revealed to me this truth. And then they will give you whatever it is that they think that the Lord revealed to them which was not the Lord revealing it at all, but it's simply the product of their own mind. And what they want to do is teach you what they have on their own authority, and they try and use God's name in order to sort of give that the stamp of approval. 
Uh, they teach from their own authority, claiming to have had a vision or claiming to have got this right from God or here's something new that the Lord has showed me. He hasn't shown anybody else for 2,000 years this in the history of the church, but the Lord has revealed this to me. And so here is this new teaching. Or they will simply get up and say, you should believe me because I'm the pastor. Or you should believe me because I'm the only pastor in the church. Or I have a direct line to God. Or because of my position of authority, you ought to believe me. Or because I come up with this because of my charismatic personality, you should believe me. Those are the ways that that shapes up. You can see people who come up with their own authority, or speak from their own authority on Christian television any day of the week. They come up with this nonsense. That God has revealed to them something, and so here it is. And they give it to you on their own authority. Because it's not derived from the Word of God. It's basically what it boils down to. They don't get it from Scripture. They get it as a product of their own head. The second mark of a false teacher is he always seeks his own glory. And that glory might be a pursuit of pleasure or a pursuit of comfort or a pursuit of your best life or a pursuit of convenience or going after gold or glory or reputation or status or a bigger church or a bigger ministry or a bigger venue or whatever it is. They will seek their own glory. And as much as a false teacher might sprinkle his words or his sermons with references to God and allusions to Scripture and references to Jesus and quotations from the New Testament or Old Testament, you will always find something that rings true at the end of the day, and that is that in spite of all of the sprinkling of quotations and references to God, somehow they they themselves always seem to be at the center of it. They're right at the center of it. It always seems to be about them. Their ministry, their glory, their charisma, their ability, their reach, Their comforts, their convenience, their empire, those are the two marks of a false teacher. They will speak from their own authority, and they will seek their own glory. And those two things really rest at the heart of their charge to Jesus. How does this man teach us, having never been taught himself? And they have charged him with being a false teacher. That was the sentiment among some. And now they're saying that he is basically speaking from his own authority. He's never been taught. And so since he's never been taught, you ought never to listen to him. So Jesus answers Those two marks in verses 16 through 18, and we're going to have a chance to look at the first one, verses 16 and 17. Jesus answers their charge about the substance of his teaching and saying that he was speaking from his own authority. All right, so look again at the charge in verse 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus answered them, and here's his straightforward response. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, I've been sent by the Father and I didn't derive this teaching out of my own mind. I didn't come up with this out of my own doctrinal perspective. I didn't invent this within myself. I have received my teaching from the Father. The Father sent Him. And Jesus refers to the Father sending Him and also giving Him the words to speak. Jesus is saying, I don't come up with this myself. Their charge was, you didn't get this from another man. See, there was nothing worse in their culture than a self-appointed authority. That, that was something, that, that might be something that we like. We, we seem to follow after people who appoint themselves to positions of power. But in their culture, it was a mark of hubris to appoint yourself to a position of authority, to not be recognized by other people or some other uh, authoritative institution, to simply seize power or to grab a hold of something or to appoint yourself to that position was a mark of hubris, arrogance, pride. Who could think so highly of themselves and so little of the truth as to do something like that? And that really is at the base of their charge. And Jesus is saying, I didn't appoint myself. And I haven't come up with my teaching out of myself. It's not of my own authority. It is the Father who sent me, who gave me this authority and gave me the message. Jesus speaks of this in other places in the Gospel of John. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 12, 49, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus claims that his teaching, all that he said, was really the Father working through him. Now, you and I might read quotations like that, Jesus saying, everything that I'm saying is not mine, it is the Father's, and everything that the Father has given me, that I teach. And some people will use references like that and say, Jesus is there making himself less than the Father. See, Jesus and the Father are not equal. The difference, Jesus had to be submissive and obedient to the Father. References like that are not intended to communicate an inequality between the Father and the Son, but they are intended instead to indicate to us that the Son was submissive to the Father, and that the Father, God the Father, was the source of all that the Son did. In other words, it doesn't make Jesus less than God. What it does indicate to us is that he was not a renegade deity. The Son did not come to earth and just start spouting stuff off without any authorization from the Father and in contradiction to the will of the the Father and the Spirit. He was in complete harmony with the triune Godhead in all that he said, because all that he said came from heaven. He was not a self-appointed man. He was not a self-authorized man. And therefore, he didn't match the mark of that that first mark of a false teacher. So look at verse 17. Jesus says, If anyone is willing to do his will, that is, the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, here's a principle that manifests itself in a number of different ways throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm going to try and give you the principle, the overarching principle, and then show you how just a couple of applications of the principle. The principle is this. Those who are obedient to God know the truth. Those who are obedient to God know the truth. They understand the truth. They can discern the truth. Those who are obedient to God can listen to something being spoken and they know whether it is true or not. Because the issue really is the truthfulness of Jesus' teaching. And that's what they have challenged. And Jesus says, if somebody is willing to obey God, if you have a submissive, obedient, humble, teachable heart, then you will be able to listen to the teaching of Jesus and know whether or not it is true. What's interesting about this principle, and I'll give you a couple of applications, but I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't point to anything objective as proof that his claims are from God. Do you notice that? He doesn't point to anything objective. He points to something subjective. If you as a hearer, if I as a hearer am willing to obey God, if my heart's desire is the glory of God and obeying Him, then my heart will be in a position to know whether teaching is of God or of men. Let me say that again. If your heart is inclined for the glory and obedience to God, then your heart is in a position to know whether what you are hearing is truth from God or falsehood from man. It is the humble, obedient person that knows the truth. Now, Jesus could have pointed to something objective as proof that his claims were true. For instance, he could have pointed to his miracles. Jesus could have said this, If you want to know if my teaching is of God or not, Look at the signs that I do. I do miracles. Look at the miracles that I have performed. That is an indication. An external, objective reality. That is the indication that I speak from God. But it doesn't point to that. They've challenged his ability to teach. Whether he's qualified to teach. 
You're not qualified to teach because you haven't been taught in one of our schools. Jesus turns the table and He challenges their qualification as hearers. You're not qualified to hear because you're not obedient. They've challenged His qualifications to teach. He challenges their qualifications to listen. You're not an apt listener because you are not obedient to the Father. If you were obedient to the Father, you would recognize instantly that the what I teach comes from Him and not from myself. So Jesus could have pointed to his signs and said, you want an objective proof that what I say is true? Look at the signs that I do. After all, that was what Nicodemus realized, right? John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that no teacher can do the sign. We know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus looked at the signs and said, the signs are proof that what you say is from God. Nicodemus figured it out. So why didn't Jesus on this occasion point to the signs that he did as evidence that his claims were true? Why didn't he do that? Because he doesn't do it. Interestingly, he did it back in chapter 5 when he was speaking to this exact same group of people who had the exact same intention over this exact same issue, which was their desire to kill him, for the sign that he did at the pool. And he said back in chapter 5, verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So why did Jesus on that occasion point to the signs, but on this occasion he doesn't? There's something significant going on. And here it is. What had they done the last time that he did a sign in their presence? How did they respond? They were seeking to kill him. Did they know of his signs? They did. Were they aware of his signs? Yeah, they were. They knew what he was capable of doing. They had seen it. They had evidence. The man that he had healed as a cripple at the Pool of Bethesda back in chapter 5 was still walking amongst them 18 months later in Jerusalem. That proof and evidence was there. They knew of his miracle working ability, but what had they done with it? They had rejected the miracle working ability and did not see it as a proof of his that his claims came from God. And Jesus now is pointing to the reason behind their rejection of his signs, which is the heart attitude. They were not willing to obey God. That's what verse 19 is about. When he says, did not the Lord give you the law of Moses? And yet, none of you keep the law of Moses. It was disobedience which was the issue. Now see, if they had had an obedient heart, if they had been humble and willing and teachable and willing to submit themselves to God and obey Him, then they would have seen the signs that Jesus did and they would have said, this must be the Christ. This is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Other people had come to that conclusion. Nicodemus had come to that conclusion. But because these men's hearts were bent toward darkness, with a love for darkness that was disobedient, unwilling to obey, unwilling to turn to the truth, Jesus doesn't even point to the signs. They'd already rejected that. And he is saying, the reason why you reject the signs and why you reject my teaching is because your heart is not teachable. The one who is obedient, that heart is in a position to know whether the teaching is of God or of men. The heart that is disobedient will be quickly led into error because it is unable to discern whether the teaching is of God or of men. That's the principle. Now, a couple of applications. A couple of applications. Here's the first. The Lord does not give greater light to one who does not obey the light that he has already given. The Lord does not give greater light to one who does not obey the light that has already been given. With every amount of truth that you receive and that you come to understand, every level of understanding in your faith and Scripture, the Lord reveals to you something that needs to be dealt with or something that needs to be grappled with or something needs to be understood and walked in obedience to. When you turn from that truth in disobedience, you are turning from light 
to darkness. You are turning from truth toward error. And every act of disobedience to a truth, something you know to be true, every voluntary conscious act of disobedience turns you toward darkness and away from that truth. Every act of disobedience moves you further into darkness, further into darkness, further into darkness. The Lord does not give greater light to one who does not obey the light that has already been given to them. So when the Lord reveals something to us in Scripture, or when we are brought into an understanding of truth by the illumination of the Spirit of God, I'm not talking about extra-biblical revelation, but an understanding of truth, and I look at something and I say, this is where I need to conform my heart, my will, my actions, my behavior to Scripture. Here is how I need to submit myself to the Lord and be willing to obey Him. When I turn away and say, I'm not willing to obey, friends, the Lord is not going to continue to move me from one degree of glory to another into deeper and deeper truths if I am not willing to obey the light that He has already given to me. That's the principle here. That's the application of this. The one who is willing to obey will be able to know the teaching whether it is true or whether it is false, whether it is of God or whether it is of man. Every act of disobedience moves us toward darkness and away from light. Before long, friends, this is what happens. The light grows dimmer and dimmer and dimmer to the point where a Christian can actually wake up one day and say, I have been walking in darkness and I have no idea how I got here. And I would be willing to bet you, you can trace that back almost all the time to an act of disobedience, a conscious, willing act of disobedience and disregard for some truth where they began that process, a long process away from what they knew to be true, into darkness and error. Is this not the truth in your own Christian life? Look back on your own Christian life. You'll see that by experience you know this to be true. You know it to be true that the times in which you have grown most in your walk, in your faith, and you have just made leaps and bound are the times in your life when you were teachable and every every illumination of truth and every grasp of a new thing, you responded to it in teachable humility, willing to obey it and just grow and grow and grow. And the times when you stagnated in your Christian life and you stopped growing are the times when you were not as interested in obedience. And when you're not interested in obedience, then before long, the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word and the reading of Scripture, both privately and publicly, and the worship of God and service to Him, those be, you're not interested in those anymore. Why? Why should you be interested in them? They, they, they have lost their allure. They have lost their attraction. And you know why? Because you're no longer interested in Scripture or the teaching of the Word or the preaching of the Word because you have stopped growing in leaps and bounds from one truth to another truth and it ceases to be exciting. And it has ceased to be exciting because I stopped obeying and now I'm not growing. And when I've stopped obeying and I'm not growing, it's no longer exciting and so I have no more hunger for it. But the opposite is true. When we obey, the Lord brings us more truth and more light and we grow from one degree of glory to the next, and we progress in our Christian life from one stage to the next, and it becomes exciting. And, and everything we learn is a new truth revealed and a new manifestation of that truth. And as long as we keep our hearts in humble willingness to obey, then we know the truth, and we receive the truth. The Lord does not reveal more light to those who have responded to previous light with disobedience. He only does so to those who obey the truth and obey the light. A second principle, or application we could say, is if the glory of God is the listener's goal, then he will be able to discern whether or not it is the speaker's goal. I read that little phrase in a commentary this last week, and it, was, it made a lot of sense because of some things that I've been noticing in Christian media recently. If the glory of God is the listener's goal, the listener will be able to ter- determine whether or not it is the speaker's goal. 
If the listener is willing to obey, he will be able to discern whether the teacher is willing to obey, whether the teacher is giving truth or error. The same principle is true if the listener's goal is the glory of God, the listener, that's you, will be able to discern whether that is my goal or not. Just this last week, as is my custom sometimes, because I either have way too much time on my hands or I get bored or I'm just a glutton for punishment, I was flipping through the Christian TV channels. And uh, I came across one of my favorite false teachers to tune into every once in a while and watch, and that's Joel Osteen. And as I was, uh, as the camera was panning out, and I can only usually take about 10 minutes of it before I just, I, I have to turn it off or, or I have a stroke. As the camera was panning out over the crowd, and there's what, 20,000 people, 30,000 people in this massive, massive building. I was thinking to myself, and this is before I kind of was even started studying this. I was thinking to myself, what is it about this guy that attracts people to him? Because it's not just the 30,000 people that pile in there for three different services. It's the podcasts and the video casts and the television program and the books and the weekly devotionals and the email newsletters and all of the stuff. He reaches millions of people every week with his message. Why is it that people are so attracted to that man? And I thought to myself, and then it occurred to me, those people are attracted to him because he is going after the same thing that they are going after. He is promoting himself and his best life and his comforts and his conveniences and his wealth and his reputation and his popularity and his easy life. And because that is the speaker's ambition, that is also the ambition of all who seek to listen to him. You see, whatever the interests and motivation of the speaker are, that is in all likelihood going to be the interest and motivation of all who will listen to him. That's the principle laid down in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when Paul says that the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but they will instead accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, will tickle, itch their ears, and they will be turned aside from the truth and be turned aside to myths. They will turn away from the truth and be turned aside to myths. How does that happen? Which comes first, the false teacher or the audience? Which comes first, the audience the crowd or the false teacher? It's not a chicken and egg question. They both actually have to happen at the same time. You find a group of people who are seeking a certain thing and somebody will rise up and teach that very thing and gather a crowd around them. And the audience will accumulate around a teacher who will tell them what they want to hear and be seeking the very thing that the audience is seeking. And the teacher will attract to him people who are interested and motivated by the same thing that motivates him. If you are humble and consumed with the glory of God, if that is your goal and your motivation, then you will find that you will be attracted to people who share that motivation. And you will find that the person who is consumed with the glory of God, that is their goal, that they will not be fed by somebody whose interest is their own self-promotion. They will be frustrated by those people. And people who are interested in their own self-promotion will not be fed by people who are interested in the glory of God. So the people who are seeking God's glory, who are humble and teachable and willing to obey, they will be able to discern whether what I'm being taught comes from God's Word or whether what I'm being taught comes from man. That's the principle. And they will be attracted to people who are attracted and motivated by the very same thing that motivates them. That's the principle behind a false teacher. And Jesus, in verses 16 and 17, is saying... The source of my teaching is the Father. I'm not teaching by my own authority. I'm not seeking my own glory. And if you, that is the Jews, had an obedient and willing heart, you would know right away that what I teach is for the glory of God. And it comes from the Father. 
and not from myself, that it is truth and that it is not error. It is the obedient person. It is the obedient person whose heart is in a position to determine truth from error, the teaching of God from the teaching of man. It is the disobedient who are led astray into error because that disobedient heart takes them out of a venue where they are able to discern truth from error. Discernment comes from obedience. You want to discern truth? Be obedient to it. Shun disobedience. Pursue obedience. Pursue sanctification. And then your heart will be in a position where you will know truth from error. And you will not be led astray into error. Turn back, and I want you to see this principle, and we'll close with this, in Psalm 119. One of my favorite psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm 119. There's a whole section of this psalm that is written around this very theme. Psalm 119, and I want you to look at verse 97. In this section, verse 97 to 104, I memorized this when I went to Bible college because it was my goal to to emulate this passage. And, And this passage sort of became my theme verses in my head for Bible college. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. Now, let's just stop there for just a second. What is it that made him understand more than his teachers and be wiser than all of the older people around him? What was it? It was a young man, David. And he's saying, my, my teachers, I have surpassed my teachers. And David is saying, I am wise beyond my years. What made, it, what made him smarter than everybody else around him? What made him wiser beyond than, wiser than others and wise beyond his years? What made a young man so knowledgeable and so wise? What was it? It was the Word of God, but something in David's response to the Word of God. Look at verse 100. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For your pre- from your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I love that passage. I love it. What is it that made him wiser than his enemies? more understanding than his teachers, and wise beyond his years. It was God's Word, but not just God's Word. Let me ask you this. Would David, if he had responded to God's Word in disobedience, would he have been wiser than the aged? Would he have been smarter than his teachers? Would he have more understanding than all his enemies? No. What was it that brought wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to him? Obedience. Obedience. And David is saying, because I obeyed, the Lord grew me, to the point where I surpass my teachers, I surpass those around me. All of that is His grace, but the key was obedience. Do you see how growth in grace, growth in light and understanding and knowledge and wisdom is tied in with obedience? That's the principle in verses 17, uh, 16 and 17. If you are obedient, then you will know the truth, because the obedient people know the truth. Now the next one, where Jesus answers the motive behind His teaching, I don't seek my own glory, that's in verse 18, and we'll deal with that in conjunction with verse 19 next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You, by Your grace, cause us to obey, and we ask for the empowering of Your Holy Spirit that we might respond to truth in appropriate ways. We don't want to be those who merely hear Your Word, but we want to be doers of the Word. 
We want to make, we want to hate every false way and we want to respond with joy to your word and to be excited by what you show to us in your word. We pray that you would give to us more understanding than our teachers and wisdom beyond our years through your word. We pray that you would use our humble obedience to that. Make us humble in heart. Help us to know and to see the difference between truth and error and to know whether something is the teaching of God or the teaching of men. And that can only come when we are willing to humble ourselves and obey you when you instruct us in truth. So make that the lot and portion of your people and may your glory and your presence and your grace rest upon those who are yours both now and forevermore. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.